get started today. Come on in, come on in, and it's great to see you guys. <laughs> this is the crowd that doesn't love the Cowboys. I love it. This is good. Or you don't, or you know that the Dolphins don't count as an opponent. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, anyway, it's good to see you guys today. I want to ask for your help. Uh, uh, real quick, if you've been coming here for the past six to eight weeks or something like that, you've heard some of the numbers we've been talking about in children's ministry. Um, literally about, for the most part of the year, we get about 260, 270 kids in our children's ministry that's birth through fifth grade on any given Sunday. Uh, a few weeks back, we had 310 show up. And then literally a week after that, we had about 407 show up. And uh, I say that because some of you are kind of going, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do here at the church? And I'm just saying it couldn't be more obvious, like literally right there. It's like, I mean, that, that is, I mean, yeah, you, we need your help. And um, I am saying that because we do, we do need your help. We need you to volunteer. We need you to serve, especially if you drop off kids there. Uh, if you could give your time um, at least once a month, figure out a way to go and serve back there. We have so many kids coming back here. We don't just babysit back there on Sunday mornings. We uh, you're investing your life in the next generation for the glory of God. That is what we do. You're passing on the faith from one generation to the next. It is our mandate. Uh, that is the next generation. They're going to take over here at some point, not soon. And, um, but they will be leading the charge here in years to come. And so if you will take that, and, and God has been kind of stirring in you, I want to invite you to step out um, here out of the, after the service is done. Go to the next steps table out in the foyer right out there. Um, give them your name and information because we want to follow up with you. We background check, and you got to go through a little uh, training there to make sure it's all safe and done right. But uh, we want to get your information and follow up with you there. Um, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and uh, then we'll jump into God's Word here together. Um, actually, why don't we do this? Why don't I invite you to stand? I've been, what am I doing? I got out of my rhythm there. Psalm 25 is where we're going to be. Um, this is a, a fun psalm that's all about discerning the wisdom and leading of God. If this is the first time or first time in a little while, we've been kind of jumping into the psalms and learning how to pray through the psalms. And so um, follow along with me here as I read. Psalm 21, 25 verse 1 says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame and let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O God, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord, I love that one. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted, he says. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, 
for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of its troubles. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer today. God, that you would redeem not only Israel. I do pray that you would continue to do work over there and you would redeem Israel. And Father, I also pray that you would come and bring your redemptive power into our circumstances and lives today. God, that you would redeem the gray that many of us are walking in. Um, the difficult things we're having a hard time discerning. We feel enemies surrounding us, maybe literal, maybe figurative, God. And Lord, we cry out to you and we ask for your help. God, we trust that you would meet us in that time, that you would lead us out with your mighty hand, hold us, comfort us, take us out of there and give us your wisdom in these things. God, we love you. You're invited to this place. Would you come and speak to us today? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. It's good to see you guys again. Um, this passage was reminding me back in high school, I had a really, really uh, funny way of trying to discern the will of God. Uh, I had a basketball court in my backyard. I went out to the three-point line, and I would shoot hoops to basically discern the will of God. You guys ever do this, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It, it doesn't help that you have a, a messed up view of God's will where you kind of think about God's will like, uh, kind of like let's make a deal from way back in the day. You guys remember that, that TV show? It's kind of, you, get, you got three curtains to choose from. Behind one curtain is a brand new car. Other two curtains are goats, right? <laughs> Right? It's not a good thing, Aggies, by the way. It's not like a win-win-win situation. Um, right? So it's like there's only one winner there. Right? Like, that's how we think about God's will. Right? Like There's three options, maybe two, something like that. You, you make the right choice. Hey, boom, you're in peace and you're in God's will. And, and you make the wrong decision, but you're getting goats the rest of your life. Like, it's how I thought. Right? It's how you, you kind of go through this thing. So I found myself at the basketball court many times in, in high school trying to discern the will of God. Lord, what would you have me do? Am I supposed to ask this girl out or not? And if I'm, supposed to, if I'm supposed to ask her out, like, let me, let me nail the shot, right? And I, my, literally, my whole dating life was contingent upon me hitting these shots and stuff like that. Um, I didn't date very much in high school. <laughs> so it's like, George, <laughs> uh, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Like, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you're like David and it feels like your enemies are surrounding you everywhere you look? They're coming in at you and, you, and you really have no idea how to respond. You don't know what your next step is supposed to be. Like, what do you do when it's not enemies or war or something like that? It's the everyday thing. And you know how you know what's black and what's white, but hey, the things that you're dealing with aren't really matters of black and white. You're like you're living in a world of gray. Like, how do you maneuver those situations? What do you do when you're trying to discern, okay, Lord, um, uh, am I supposed to marry this person or not? Do I need to go out with this person or not? Do I take this job or that job? Do I uproot my entire family and leave Dallas for this opportunity in a different city or do I continue to stay here and faithfully invest? Um, do I choose this school or that school, A&M or Harvard or whatever it may be, right? This past week I was talking with some, uh, some people that had a really, really tough one on their, on, their, on their hands, but the question that they were dealing with was like, Okay, what does is, what is, what is wise discipline look like in this situation with my kid? Like, how do I lovingly discipline my children in a way where they get the severity of the sin and the things that they're walking in? At the same time, I don't do it in a way that pushes them further and further away. Like, what does it look like to have truth and grace in the middle of this very, very murky, in the middle of this very, very gray situation that I find myself walking in? Here's another one that I heard from this past week. What does wisdom look like while I'm being sued? Like, what does godly wisdom look like for me while I'm being sued and while people are coming against me? And, and how do I continue pressing in right there? Here's another one. Um, 
uh, has my marriage come to the point where I need to do something dramatic and actually separate for a season so that we can actually do some legitimate hard work in this thing that it would be saved? Like, when, when do we go there? When, when, when do we go in those kinds of, what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed to pursue, like, vocational ministry? Do I continue in my profession and, and pursue professional ministry? Is my home life ministry? Like, what, what, what is, God, what is this thing that you're calling me to do? I mean, real quick, how many of you would say, hey, I, I'm in a season like that where I'm trying to discern, I'm, I'm living in a world of gray, and I'm doing my best to try to navigate the gray? How many of you are going to go and like, I, these are the decisions that are in my life. This is the thing. It's a, maybe it's today. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was next week. But like, that's exactly what David's going to help us with here in this psalm. And so all I want to do this morning, if you haven't already turned there, you can go ahead and turn there. It is Psalm 25. Uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter. But all I want to do is I just want to show you what David does as, as he helps, as he navigates the gray. Um, he kicks it off, and that is his circumstance, right? He's going, oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me, let me not be put to shame. In other words, I'm terrified. Like, I'm terrified, I, I, and I'm declaring, I am trusting in you in this thing, but I'm terrified. Don't let me be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. In other words, like, he's surrounded by his enemies, and he's going, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do in the middle of this thing? Make me know your ways, oh, Lord. They're not clear to me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth, and teach me. In other words, like, wisdom, God, I need your wisdom in the middle of this thing. All I can see is gray. All I can see is the fog around me. It's not clear. I want to walk with you, and I don't know what it looks like to walk with you. The key to the entire thing is going to be in, in verse 12. You probably picked up on this a little bit earlier, but here's what he says. He says, who is the man who, what? Fears the Lord. Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Couldn't be more clear than that, could it? Right? Like, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct, she will she, he, instru he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. By the way, it's not the, same, not the first time we've heard this, right? Moses says the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, now these are the commands of the Lord your God has commanded me to teach to you. He's speaking to the nation of Israel right there as they're, get, as they're getting the law for the first time. And he says, here it is, that you should fear the Lord your God. How? by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments that your days may be long. Proverbs says the exact same thing, an entire book on wisdom. He says, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of the wisdom, that uh, is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, church, like if you want to be a person who's able to discern godly wisdom, then it all begins with this healthy fear of the Lord. So what are we talking about when we talk about fear of the Lord? Are we talking about like a legitimate fear, being afraid, being terrified of God or is it reverence? Or is it some sort of a combination in between? Acts chapter 5, there's a, there's a fascinating story in there that I think uh, beautifully illustrates kind of what's going on here in fear. But it's, it's just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come onto the scene. And the church is now exploding all throughout the land. This is the first century. Uh, churches, the gospels, I mean, it's just multiplying like crazy. Churches popping up everywhere. Um, the Holy Spirit is pretty new to the scene at this time. And the, the new covenant, let me say that, uh, clarity right there, uh, in the new covenant, in this indwelling of believers and stuff. And so, um, and so there's this scene where the, the early church, they're selling the things that they have, they're sharing with people who are in their community who are in need. Um, and it says that Ananias and Sapphira, you guys remember this story at all? 
Ananias and Sapphira are, are a couple in the first century church, and they do the same thing. They sell what they have in order to give to those who are in need. Um, but the difference is that they end up lying to the rest of the community and to the Holy Spirit, it says, about what they actually sell and how much they give away. And, of course, they do this in order to appear more godly than they actually are. And so since it's there at the very beginning of uh, this new covenant, the beginning of the church, God's going to set an example for them. And it says that immediately when they do this, they're struck dead right there on the scene. Verse 5, it says that a great fear came over the crowd. In other words, he does, this happens publicly, and everybody knows that they've been caught in a lie, and immediately these guys are struck dead, Ananias and Sapphira, and it says that a, a massive fear came over the crowd. You can imagine that, right? If that were to happen here at DBC, we'd be terrified at that thing. What's interesting about the story is that it's not a fear that ends up driving them away from the Lord. Uh, it ends up saying right here, it says, a few verses later, it says, uh, even though the people were afraid of Peter and the apostles, it says that they still held them in great esteem. So much so that in verse 14, it says that they're not running away in fear, but instead, more than ever before, believers are being added to their number every, every, added to their number every single day. In other words, re revival is breaking out on the scene in the middle of something that is absolutely terrifying. And those are the two sides of the coin, of, of the fear coin, right? Like on one side is this very sober reality that he's a holy God and, and I'm not holy. On the one side of fear is this understanding that that holiness can have absolutely nothing to do with holiness. It's why everybody, when, when the presence of God comes all throughout the Old Testament, they shield their eyes. They cannot be in the presence of God or immediately they die. There's this understanding. Holiness can have absolutely nothing to do with holy. He is all-powerful. I am not. He is transcendent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is all these omnis, and I'm not any of those things. I'm very temporal in my ways. There's this very sober, sober understanding of who I am in light of who he is. By the way, church, I don't want us to dismiss this kind of fear too quickly. Okay? Like, this is a very, very legitimate motivator. It's been a very powerful motivator throughout our church's history. I mean, you remember back at the very first Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached this message called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. You remember, like, this used to be the MO back in the day. Um, it, it, launched, it helped launch the Great Awakening, but he preached this message to this church in New England that was, notor no, that was known for being licentious in all of their ways. Um, they were the last, one of the last cities to kind of repent and, to, and get, embrace this uh, revival that has sprung up everywhere. Jonathan Edwards goes, and he's like, this is a hard-hearted, this is a cold-hearted community. And he goes, and he preaches this message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And if you know this message, it's a very, very famous message to this day, but essentially he's saying, you don't want to be a sinner found in the hands of an angry God. You, like, that's not who you want to be. Like, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from your sin. Like, you, you do not want to be a sinner that's found in the hands of an angry God. And so here it is. Here's Jesus, the one whose sacrifice satisfies the wrath of this God, uh, and, and he chooses to lavish us with grace instead. And, of course, what ends up happening is, like, the entire church and that whole, it continues in the Great Awakening. There's massive revival that comes and takes place when they realize that this powerful, almighty, holy God, who I am not a part of right here, in the middle of all of his power, he still chooses grace instead. It's the two sides of the fear coin. On one hand, there's this understanding, that's who he is, and here's who I am in light of that, and I should be terrified. On the other hand is the sober understanding that in the middle of all of that power, while he is still holy, while he has all power and authority over my life, he still chose to give me grace instead. Church, I'm telling you, it's enough to bring revival to people. I mean, it's enough to, I mean, it's enough to transform an entire country and for more and more people to be added to our number daily, those who are being saved. 
great example of this is the time that I had, a, I had an opportunity to meet Goldberg back when I was co- in college. You guys remember Goldberg, the old wrestler? All right, terrifying guy. You don't want to cross him. You can take that picture off now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but that's Goldberg. Anybody, any WCW fans back in the day, you can admit it. I'm not going to shame you or call you out. I loved it. I'm not the only one. Come on. Come on. Don't leave me hanging here. Don't leave me hanging here. Come on. It was fun. Um, back, it's so like, it was fun. Thanks. We got a couple people. Thank you. I see you. I see you. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, back in the day, that, that was a ton of fun. And so they came to College Station, a Christian fraternity. We were hosting, uh, we were part of the service team hosting this event at Reed Arena. And so they come into town, and we're there early, we're, we're there like hours before the event takes place, setting up Reed Arena, getting ready for the night and all this kind of stuff. Well, I walk in one of the back hallways long before all the crowds got there and everything else, before the show begins, and I'm walking down one of these back hallways back at Reed Arena, and I turn around the corner, I'm just, I'm just walking, then all of a sudden, literally, around the other corner, corner walks Goldberg, like shirt off, like the whole, the thing here, you know, it's like, I, I, I was, I, I was like, oh my gosh, there's Goldberg. And, and guys, like, I was dressed as Sting that night, right? Like I literally, that's what we did. We dress up as Sting, the guy with the white face, long black hair, kind of looks, uh, anyway, it's just really, really weird. It's Goldberg's enemy, right? He's Goldberg's enemy. And I'm walking there dressed as Sting. Goldberg comes around. Like I never regretted dressing as Sting more than my life that night. I'm like, wow, good choice of costume tonight. But I was terrified. Like, I'm staring at Goldberg right down this hallway and just painfully aware, like, he could destroy me at any time. And, uh, and then, of course, he decides to mess with me. He knows it's just us, and he sees me, and he kind of looks at me, dressed as Sting, and then he goes, like that. If you guys know Goldberg, like, that's his, hey, I'm about to kill you move. Like, when he gets down in the squat, like, people die immediately after that. And, of course, I, like, it was bad news right there. I thought my life was, it was flashing in front of my eyes. Uh, I thought the whole thing was done, and it's just not what he did. He, he stood up, and he starts laughing a little bit, and he comes over, and he pats me on the back. He broke a shoulder blade, I think, and, like, <laughs> he shakes my hand. And I'm not kidding you, guys. Like, his hand was probably, like, four of my hands. It was, like, it was like these things. It made me feel like a little child. He shakes my hand. And he's like, I hope you have a good time tonight. He's like, I'm just messing with you, bro. I had a good time. And, like, I'm not kidding you, church. Like, like immediately after that day, I was the, I was the largest Goldberg fan ever. Like, I bought all the T-shirts. I had the posters hanging in my room, right? Like, I spent the rest of my life, like, you know, shaping my physique like his. And so, um, I mean, that's, when you, that, that's what you do when you understand that the one who has all the power and authority over your life instead chose grace and kindness towards you when you deserve nothing but judgment and, and separation and everything else. Church, it's, it's why there's revival breaking out in Acts chapter 5, and, and it's why there's fear at the same time. It's a fear that I'm drawn into the Savior who has total power and authority over my life and who chooses to give me grace instead. I mean, it's exactly what John Newton's writing about in this famous song that we sing all the time, Amazing Grace. I mean, it's why it's persisted over the centuries, and we can continue to sing it today. It's, it's, it's the same concept right there. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" You remember the John Newton story? Like he wrote this song, or he didn't write it on the boat, but it begins right there. He's a, he's a slave trader back in the day, and he's on the middle of this boat in the middle of the storm, and it's such a terrifying storm. Uh, this is before he's a believer in Jesus Christ at that time, but it's such a terrifying storm that he was just in the middle of this thing, and he cries out to God that he didn't believe in, and he says, God, if you're there, uh, he says, God, if you're there, save my life, and I'll give it into you. But he says, in the middle of that storm, I was painfully aware that my life wasn't in my own hands. There was someone else who was actually in control of my life, and so what he's saying here is that it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Like, it was actually your grace that made me understand there is an 
all-powerful, almighty God, and my life is in his hands. And it was grace that made my heart to fear. At the same time, it was also grace my fears relieved. So it was grace that led me to this terrifying reality that you're in control, I'm not in control of my life. And it was also grace that relieved all my fears, which made me understand that in the middle of that place, God chose kindness, God chose grace, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that I may be saved in the middle of that place. Like I was sting in the middle of that hallway standing next to Goldberg. Like I was the slave trader on that boat deserving condemnation and in the middle of that place God chose kindness instead. It's why we sing those lyrics every single time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm actually found. I was blind but now I see. It's why revival breaks out in that time. Church, when you understand the two sides of the coin that he is the all-powerful, almighty holy God and I am not and I'm a lost and dead sinner that, that is deserving of separation. And in the middle of that place, God chooses kindness instead. I'm telling you, I get, that's why fear will lead you to, that's why uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in the middle of that place. It's where worship springs up. So church, I'm just going to ask you real quick, like, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, do you know both sides of the coin? Do you know both sides of the coin? Have you ever had that Newtonian experience where you come face to face with the almighty power of God and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, hey, my life is in your hands. You have total and complete control and authority over me. I am a sinner compared to a holy God. I deserve nothing but separation from you. And then have you ever flipped over that coin to understand that in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love for you sent his one and only son, Jesus, to bear the punishment that you deserved that you may receive his grace. I mean, it's why David is going to say that it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Otherwise, why in the world would you ever draw near to that kind of God? Church, it's the key to the entire thing. You want wisdom. If you, you, there, there's a couple kinds of wisdom. Like you can have wisdom, but then you can have God's wisdom. And God's wisdom demands that, that there's a healthy fear of the Lord that's there in place. I want to keep going because this is the umbrella that kind of that categorizes the entire thing. He says the key to understanding and discerning the wisdom of God in any given moment, it begins with fear. That's the only reason you'll ever draw near to this all-powerful God who still chooses grace. But then after that, I want you to notice the second thing that he does, really one of the first things that he does is he just simply asks the Lord for his wisdom. He simply asks the Lord for his wisdom. In the middle of kind of going, hey, I don't know what to do. The enemies are crashing in on me. I don't know what it is you'd have me do. He comes to the Lord and, and he's saying, God, I want to know what you think on this matter. What would it look like for me to walk in your ways? Make me to know your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Church, let me ask you this question. Like, is, is that what you're thinking about when you're in the gray? I mean, when, when you're in the fog and you can't see your way out and you don't know what those next steps are supposed to be like and you don't know where it is that you're supposed to go, is the thing that's on the top of your mind is, okay, Lord, where would you have me go? Because I gotta be honest, like, it's not my default. My default is to simply take matters into my own hands and, and to problem solve and to solve my own things and to come up with my own wisdom. Anybody else kind of in that same boat? You're kind of like, I, like logic and problem solving are my love language, right? Like, I, I love that. You throw a problem at me it's like I love coming up with, I love coming up with solutions. I love those classes in college. Anybody else wired that way a little bit? Like there's nothing wrong with being wired like that. However, the only problem is that sometimes God's wisdom, it'll, it just won't make any sense. And sometimes like when you're trying to discern the wisdom of God, it's not going to be logical what he calls you to do. I mean, Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah to build an ark for a flood that the world hasn't even seen at this point in time. It hadn't even rained like that before. 
Genesis 12, like God tells Abraham, pack up your family, go to a land that I'm going to show you along the way. I would have been like, okay, tell me the plan. Where are we going here? Like, tell me, like, where are we going to stop along the way? Where's the Bucky's, right? I, I need to know. Like, where's the Bucky's on the way there? Uh, Joshua 6, the battle plan at Jericho was for the armies of Israel to march around the walls, praying and shouting with trumpets and things like that, and trusting in the Lord to, that he's going to make those walls fall. It doesn't make any sense. Gideon's army in Judges chapter 7, uh, God tells Gideon to reduce his army from 10,000 down to 300, and doing that, in doing so, you're going to trust in the Lord, and he's going to deliver the victory in your hands. Church, I'm telling you, like, God's wisdom often defies our logic. It doesn't always make sense. A little while ago, I was talking with another pastor friend of mine, and he was telling me about some families in their church. They reached the retirement age, and uh, they retire from their jobs. They had tons of wealth and money. Uh, they weren't sick or in any kind of need or anything like that. They decided to sell everything that they had and move and intentionally move into a retirement community in order to plant a church. And he goes, like, that's what they chose to do with their retirement. They sold what they had. They didn't need to be in a retirement community. They understood that there's an entire world of people there who feel left out and detached from everybody else. And so we decided to go, and we're going to go move in there, and we're going to go plant a church. Like I'm telling you, church, the wisdom of God, it doesn't always make sense. It's not going to be the things that says, hey, what do I need to be doing next? It's not going to be the thing that's just logically always there. And some of us are kind of going, okay, well, that's fine because I'm not really a logical person anyway. I'm kind of more of a heart person, more of a trust your gut kind of a thing. And church, it's the exact same thing. Jeremiah 17, 9 is going to say the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Solomon's going to say a thing at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. He's going to say, Lord, turn our hearts back to you. In other words, he understands that our hearts are prone to deceptiveness. We're prone to wander. Like, well, like God's wisdom is often going to defy, defy the things that we want to do naturally. I'm going to never forget back in the Revive Texas days a few years back, if you're newer to the church, um, Revive Texas was a thing we, we gathered together with about 150-ish other churches here in the Metroplex. We spent 50 consecutive days going into the community intentionally all day long, um, different segments, of course, and, and, and going out there, praying with people, sharing the gospel, um, trusting that God was going to move, and we, we saw him move in incredible ways. I'll never forget one of these days. We were out in Vickery Meadow, which is a refugee community, uh, kind of a little bit further south, 75 and kind of Park Lane-ish, and uh, we were out there uh, praying with people and, and trying to share the gospel, and quite honestly, it was one of these days I didn't want to be there. It was one of these days that I'm just tired and exhausted. I had a lot on my plate that had just been on the back burner. I was not ready for Sunday and everything. And I mean, we're just really busy that week. And I was kind of there with this team of people and we're trying to share the gospel. It's not going very far. And it's one of these days that uh, we had a lot of language barriers going on there, which is what, you, what happens in a lot of refugee communities. But we had a lot of barriers there. I remember meeting this one family. It's a mom and her little girls, two young little girls there. And... Uh, we tried talking with her. It's not working because of the language barrier, but she waved us into her home. She goes, she's like, hey, come into my home. And so she brought, we, our team came in there a little bit, and we're trying to communicate. It's just not going far at all. We're in there about 15 minutes, and I'm going to go, what am I doing? I'm wasting time. I'm, I don't want to be here. My heart wasn't fully there at that time. And uh, finally, about 15 minutes into it, her junior high daughter comes into the living room, and she speaks perfect English as well as their natural language, of course. And so we sit down, and, and uh, she starts translating for us. And we start going through the, the gospel. Like we have these little Bibles that are tabbed, and they're highlighted and stuff, and we just have them read it. And she starts reading it and translating it for her family. We start talking through it left and right. 
And I'm not kidding you. We get to the part where I'm talking about it is by God's grace that you're saved through faith. I'm trying to explain to them what grace actually means, undeserved favor. You don't deserve it. God chooses to give it to you anyway. And I start doing this thing, and she says, hold on, hold on. And she starts asking me for a lot more clarification. We start going back and forth, and I'm explaining it to her. And I'm not kidding. You can see her disposition change. She goes into this thing. We get into the final part that says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart, God. Raise them from the dead. You will be saved. And I ask this family, what is keeping you from saying yes to Jesus? And she just looks at me and she says, nothing. I want him. I want this Jesus you're talking about. And everybody else is kind of confused. And she goes, from there on out, for the next five or six minutes, this little girl goes and she just convinces her family, tells them everything that we just talked about. And she just goes and goes and goes. And I don't know what they're talking about over there. All I know is at the end of their time together, we prayed with the entire family. Church, that divine encounter began with a heart that didn't want to be there. It began with this understanding of, hey, I've got other things to be doing. There's other people that could be engaged in this process. I did not want to be there. However, praise God that his wisdom often defies our logic, and it often defies how we feel. Like, that's what he's saying right here. Uh, David's sitting here going, like, I, don't, I, I know what I think, and I know what I feel, but that's not enough. What I want to know is I want to know your wisdom on this matter, oh God. I want to know how you think in the, middle of this, in the middle of this situation. How do I move when my enemies are engaging on around me? That's what I want to know. I could solve problems myself. I could take matters in my own hand. But the thing that I'm concerned about is I want to know how you think on the matter. It's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, one of my favorite prayers are prayer all the time. But he says, when he comes to the church in Corinth, he says, When I came to you, church, I didn't come in persuasive words of human wisdom. I came to you in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and his power that your faith, our faith, it may not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the very power of God. In other words, like there's a human wisdom and there's a divine wisdom. And what he's saying here is like all of us, we could care less about human wisdom. You don't care about Paul's wisdom. You don't care about my wisdom. You don't care about the Internet's wisdom. I want to know your wisdom, oh God. And so what David is saying here is that that's what I'm asking you to give. I want to know how you think on this matter. I want to know what you would have me do in the middle of this gray. I want to know how you would have me respond when I can't figure out what grace and truth looks like in the middle of this season right here. Because I've got answers and stuff, but I want to know what you think on the matter. Church, it seems really, really simple, but the reality is it's just not a given that that's the first thing that we do. Like when was the last time that you were in that season of gray and literally the first thing that came to your mind was great, I'm going to go hit my knees. Like the first thing before Google and your friends and your parents and, and your spouse and the, your, your people, before even all that, you're kind of going, okay, Lord, God, like I want to know what you would have me do in this situation. David asks. And it seems simple, but again, it's not a given that that is the first thing that we're going to do. He keeps going and he simply says, uh, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Literally, it means coach me or train me in your truth that I'd be able to learn it. Um, and then he says, for you are the God of my salvation and for you I wait all the day long. In other words, it seems like David is understanding that wisdom is found uh, really in the filter of understanding and learning God's truth and then being able to wait on his spirit to lead you. I love how Hebrews talks about this. He says, uh, he's kind of talking about the comparison of milk Christians, I'm going to call them, and kind of meat Christians. It's uh, immature believers and mature believers. And he simply says, uh, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, like baby believers and un, uh, not mature Christians, like they're unskilled. They don't know how to utilize God's word in a way that leads to greater righteousness. But here, and then he says, since he is a child, verse 14. But solid food, he says, is for the mature 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice in order to distinguish good from evil. In other words, church, like the ability to discern godly wisdom in a moment, it takes training and it takes practice. In other words, it's, it's, it's a lot like an athlete, right? A lot of times the athletes, like, they're not trained in exactly how a game is going to go. Like an athlete isn't told exactly how, here's exactly how you do it when the defense plays this. All, they're do, all, all they do is they train as hard as they can so that when the time comes, uh, they're able to read the defense and whatever the defense gives them and then make the des- best decision that they possibly can in that moment. I remember this interview that Michael Jordan gave a long time ago. MJ was the greatest. Um, this is kind of the, at the beginning of his playoff days. He's playing the Lakers. And it was the first time we saw this move come out that um, he became known for much later on. But you remember that move? He's coming, he's playing the Lakers, and he comes down the, um, he comes down towards the goal, and, and he just starts flying, right? It's like he's in the air about six or seven minutes, and um, everybody else is like jumping up and down. You know, he's still flying and trying to figure things out. And uh, he's on the way to the goal, and then all of a sudden he comes back down, he brings the ball down, changes hands midair, comes underneath, and it's like a, he scoops it in for this incredible layup, right? People had never seen anything. He just, the way he just hung up in the air was insane. And after the game was finished, a reporter came up to him and was like, MJ, how did you, how did you do that? Did, was that your plan going into that play? I mean, did you know that you were going to do that? Like, how did you do that? And I love what he said. He goes, no, no, no. He's like, you don't plan something like that. All you do is prepare all the days of your life. And all I did was just read what the defense gave me, and that's just what I came up and decided to do. Church, that kind of ability to discern what the defense is giving you and what to do in that time, that's not normal. It takes practice. It takes work. It takes takes time in God's work. Like like what what Michael Jordan's describing right there, it's not normal, right? A little while ago, I played a a pickup football game a couple years back. Oh, it didn't go well. Um, You guys ever had that time where you're like, hey, what you want to do in your mind when you got the football, right? What you were able to do in your mind a long time ago, like your body just doesn't work like that. Like I remember, I, I got I got the ball and I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, it was something like Levy and Bell or or something like that, and um, it was right there in the mind. And then all of a sudden, like the, the legs just crippled. They just they just buckled right there. It was like I was wearing concrete boots or something. I was like, what is happening to these legs? First, the reality is like to do things like that, it takes work and it takes practice. And the reality is that I'd been out of practice for many, many, many years. Church, some of us are trying to be discerning people, and the reality is you've been out of practice for a lot of years. For some of us, you're, you're sitting here kind of going, okay, Lord, how do I discern wisdom? How do I, I want to have this relationship with you, and the reality is that you've never started to practice. And you're sitting here going, okay, God, why won't you lead me? Why won't you show me? Why isn't it more clear to me? Why won't you show me the things that you want me to do? Like, why won't you do these kinds of, like, if there's only a book that I can know you by and know how some of the ways that you work. And the reality is, church, like, he's given you everything that you possibly need in order to flourish and discern wisdom in, the, in, in a given moment. I love the way Howard Hendricks says it, one of my favorite profs back at DTS. He said, you will never be able to discern the wisdom of God any more than you know the word of God. You will never be able to discern the wisdom of God any more than you know the word of God. So that's part of what David's talking about right here. The other part that he says is, is a little bit more difficult, I, I think, personally. The other part is to patiently wait on him uh, to show you the way. Three different times he talks about this in this passage. Verse 3, he says, Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. Lead me in your truth, verse 5, and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. 
Verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Anyone else have a hard time waiting sometimes? Of all the different words in, the, in my study this past week, this is the one that I circled and highlighted more than anything in a personal way. I, it's, I, I'm fine waiting because sometimes you're forced to wait. It's not really in control. Kind of like you're on 635 in traffic. Like there's a way to wait. Um, and then there's a way to wait as David is waiting right here in such a way that he says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Like waiting is just not that thing that I like to do. I like to take matters into my own hand. I like to be decisive. I like action. I don't like sitting and waiting around. Abram and Sarah, they had a hard time waiting on the Lord. They ended up having Ishmael out of wedlock. And his line has been fighting with the Jews ever since. Samson had a hard time waiting, did he not? He gave in to Delilah. It cost him his power and it eventually cost him his life. Saul had a hard time waiting. Led to the loss of his throne. Church, the thing about waiting is that it reveals a lot about who you actually trust. I mean, it reveals what's actually going on in here rather than just what you're saying out there. God, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. Okay, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. I mean, Israel, they, they said that they trusted the Lord, but they had a hard time waiting on him. I mean, you remember this. They, they come out of the bondage of slavery, the hands of the Egyptians. They're wandering through the wilderness, off to the promised land, which, which God had promised to give them and to lead you into the promised land. They got hungry. They got thirsty. They couldn't wait any longer on the Lord to, to get them where they were supposed to go. And so they started grumbling and complaining. Let everyone around them know how angry they were to wait on the Lord. Ended up turning a 35-day walk from Egypt to the promised land into 40 years that many of those people on the journey would not get to enjoy. I love the way Tony Evans talks about it. He says, when God is telling you to wait on him, he's not trying to figure out what to do in the meantime. Like he's, he's testing your faith. He already knows what to do. And while you don't change what he's ultimately going to do, you can affect the timing. Israel turned a 35-day walk from Egypt to the promised land into a 40-year painful journey. God never changed his plan. I'm taking you to the promised land, he said. But impatience oftentimes will only prolong the journey. That's why he's going to say in verse 3 that those who wait on you will never be ashamed. It may take a little bit longer than you wanted, but I promise you it'll be done right. Little, this past week I was talking with an old friend of mine and we were kind of talking about some of this stuff. And he, reminded, he was telling me one of his own stories of being in the season of gray trying to navigate, okay, how do I, how do I engage with my teenager in this season um, discipline's hard to come by. How do I do it in a way that maintains love and relationship at the same time, actually gets results and, and communicates love and severity at the same time? It was this really difficult time. He shared with me this story of uh, one night there with the family and stuff, and one of his teenagers just starts going off and, and starts cussing him out, starts getting really, really angry at him, saying some horrific things. And he says, Aaron, you know, in the middle of that time, he's like, I wanted to rise up and I wanted to fight back. I wanted to argue. I wanted to put her in her place, let her know exactly how it was. And, and he goes, I just felt like I needed to sit there and wait. And so I took it from her for a little while. And I said, okay, God, give me this ability to be patient and to wait on you because you know what I want to say. You know what I want to do. And so finally she gets finished and he pipes back up and he says, okay, um, why don't we hold on to this? We're going to circle back around, and we're going to address it a little, a little bit later tonight. And then he just leaves, and he goes about his day. 
And he says, later that evening, I came home and I came to realize that God had already taken care of everything for me. He'd already done the hard work. He goes, I walk back into my living room and there she is waiting for me. And she goes, hey, dad, can you come in here? We need to talk. He's like, yeah, of course. And she goes, I don't, I don't know what I was doing. I don't know what I was saying. I want to let you know, I'm so sorry for the way that I treated you. I'm so sorry for the way that I talked to you. I'm so sorry about this, that, and the other. And it's not who you are. And I'm so sorry about these things. And just, and he goes, I learned that day that sometimes it is so much more powerful to wait on God to do the things that I can't do myself. I wanted to take matters into my own hand. I wanted to, I wanted to let her know exactly how wrong she was. I wanted to do all these different kinds of things, but sometimes, church, God's wisdom is just different than yours. And so he says, I want you to wait on me. I want you to wait on me. And it's hard and it's tough, but he goes, I want you to wait on me. Never forget some of the best advice I got in my transition coming from my previous church over here to Dallas Bible Church was wait on the Lord. I've told you guys elements of that story a number of times, but it was that season where we're going, okay, it's clear that God's moving us from the place, from a ministry that I loved, a church that I loved, with people that I loved, and he's doing something different in our life. And it was a terrifying time because we didn't know what that was going to look like. It's a season of gray. Are we going to be moving across the country? Are we going to be staying here in Dallas? Are we going to be starting all over again? What are we going to be doing? And one of the pastors over there said, okay, we're going to walk you through this whole process, and we're going to be patient through this whole time, but here's what I want you to do. Don't take matters into your own hand and just wait on him. Kat and I come together, and we start praying, and we just had this number in our head of the six months. We wanted to at least wait six months and just kind of give it over to the Lord and just pray and not do anything in that time. Prepare. And uh, I was very afraid to become a senior pastor, quite honestly. And uh, I was like, Lord, you need to do something about that. And we just said, okay, six months, we're just going to do nothing but pray and prepare and continue serving faithfully along the way. Church, he meets you in the middle of that time when you're waiting and you're praying. Literally six months to the day that we started praying, I walked back into my office at, at, the, at the previous church I was in, and I got a call from a recruiter that I never reached out to, ever. And he's telling me about this church that was in town that we knew, that we loved, that we were going this direction. And we were so excited about it. It seemed like the right place to us that we were going this direction. We start going down that path, and all of a sudden, boom, we, we think we're going there. We're looking at houses and the whole thing. And, and in the middle of it all, we keep praying and we keep waiting, and, and God just changes our heart. We hear about Dallas Bible Church. We come over here, and, and we come to understand, like, this is where my heart is. We shut things down. And I remember one of the questions that was given is like, okay, well, what's going to happen if things follow, fall through with Dallas Bible? I hadn't even started interviewing here at that time. And the answer was, well, um, I don't know. All I know is that God's telling me to say no to this in hopes of something greater later on. And church, and what I'm saying is that if we're willing to wait on him, he will meet you where you are, and he will lead you along the way. Like even in all the fear and the insecurity, this is one of the biggest things that I, that I dealt with along that time was dealing with the fear and insecurity of, of what we do here at the church. Um, I remember coming in that f the, the week before I started it here at the church, I went to this prayer meeting in downtown. I've told you about this about a year and a half ago or so. But uh, a buddy of mine was, just, was leading this prayer ministry there. He calls me up at the end of it, and he says, I want, to, I want to bring this friend of mine up here, and I just want you guys to take some time praying for him and see if God would give you any word of encouragement. And all I'm going to say is that, that, that in the middle of that time, these people came, and they prayed, and they simply said, they had this little this idea, this, this image of, 
of uh, the Holy Spirit being there along the way. All I'm going to say is that he just meets you there in that time and, and breaks through the different fear. And if we will simply sit there and wait on him all along the way, he will meet you in your gray and he will take you to the next place that he wants you to go. He will lead you if you fear him, if you ask him for leadership and wisdom, if you learn his truth and you're willing to wait on his timing. And sometimes the way that he leads, it's going to be very, very clear, black and white, through the, through the very simple principles of God's word. Sometimes it's going to be the, like the, like the, the counsel of the church and a cr- trusted community of believers, kind of like in Acts chapter 13, where they discern his leading all together in, in the context of community. Sometimes he's going to lead you um, in different ways that he arranges your circumstances, closed doors, open doors. It's not always how it's going to work. Sometimes it'll be things like that. Sometimes it may be an image that he gives you, a vision, a sign, even though those can be very, very dangerous to follow so many times. Sometimes it'll be an inner prompting as you pray. And as you're praying and you're discerning, okay, God, what is this thing that you want me to walk in? What what does wisdom look like? Sometimes it'll be this inner prompting, this thing, and he'll just help give you greater understanding in the middle of your prayer time. And then sometimes you're just going to simply go do this. You're just going to pray, and you're going to keep praying, and you're going to keep waiting, and you're going to keep praying, and you're going to keep waiting, and you're going to keep praying, and you're going to keep waiting, and you're never going to get the clarity that you want. And in the middle of those times, I think it's good to, to hold on to Proverbs when he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and just trust that he will make your paths straight. There's this line in in Acts chapter 15 where the apostles are trying to discern some really tough decisions in the church, and it just simply says that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to move forward in this direction. And sometimes, church, that's what it is. We need to simply walk by faith, doing everything we can to ask of the Holy Spirit for leadership, wisdom, and guidance, to dive into God's word and to say, okay, I want to learn and understand your truth, and I'm willing to wait on you. And sometimes the the next step is to simply say, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk out by faith, and I'm just going to go. Sometimes that's how it is, and that's how it needs to go. But the promise here in this text is that he will lead you. If you fear him, ask him, know his word, and are simply willing to wait. I'm going to end with this one. This is one of my favorite stories from uh, Brendan Manning tells us, one of Mother Teresa, and I love this one. Of, um, it's a famous story, but this guy has been trying to set up this appointment with her for a really, really long time. Finally, he gets on her books. They go and have this meeting, and he's just kind of frantic and freaking out a little bit. He's like, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, like, I, I need you to pray for me. I need clarity in my life. I don't understand what it is that God wants me to do. And she goes, you've been waiting all this time to come and to pray for me for clarity, P- pray with me for clarity. And, and, and he's like, yes, I, I need to have clarity in my life. And so she thinks about it for a few minutes, and finally she goes, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to pray for clarity. And he kind of He's indignant a little bit, and he's like, okay, why would you not, why, why won't you pray for clarity for me? And she goes, because clarity is the one thing that you cling to even more than God. If you've always got clarity, then you will have no need for him. I've rarely had clarity a day in my life, but I've always had patience, and I've always had trust. So I'll pray for you, but my prayer is that you'll be able to trust the Lord and wait on him to lead you instead of me. Church, that's my prayer for us today. Some of us are in that season of gray, and you're trying to discern, okay, how do I maneuver the gray, murky waters of this relationship? What does grace and truth look like? Do I need to move? Do I need to stay? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Church, the promise of this text is very, very simply that he will lead you if you fear him, if you ask him for his wisdom, if you know his word and are simply willing to wait on his leadership and his timing.